Water Margin is one of the earliest Chinese novels written in vernacular Mandarin and is attributed to Shinai An. It is also translated as Outlaws of the Marsh or All Men or Brothers. The story, which is set in the northern Song Dynasty around 1120, tells of how a group of 108 outlaws gather at Liangshan Marsh to rebel against the government. Later, they're granted amnesty and enlisted by the government to resist the nomadic conquest of the Liao Dynasty and other rebels. It is considered one of the masterpieces of early vernacular fiction and Chinese literature. It has introduced readers to many of the best-known characters in Chinese literature, such as Wu Song, Lin Chong, Song Jiang, and Lu Zhishen, to name just a few. Water Margin also exerted a towering influence in the development of fiction elsewhere in East Asia, such as in Japanese literature. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With me today is Professor Andrew Plax. He is Professor Emeritus of East Asian Studies and Comparative Literature at Princeton University. He is also the author of Archetype and Allegory in the Dream of the Red Chamber, as well as the four masterworks of the Ming novel. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Okay, thank you very much. Right. So the novel had been well received for centuries in China and considered as one of the four masterworks of Chinese literature. So what do you think makes Water Margin so popular for Chinese readers? People, I have to make a very clear distinction here between the novel, what we are calling the novel. Mm-hmm. I'll use the Chinese name Shui Guan because the all of the English translations of the title are quite misleading. There is the novel, and then there is the popular tradition of Of stories about the the、uh, the bandits and the Liangshan band and their exploits.、And、these two things are very very different and should be kept separate. Part of the reason why this、uh, set of stories is so beloved in China for so many centuries has to do more with the popular storytelling tradition than what we call the novel. The novel in China. Really, only took its full form much later than people think. Only in the 16th century. So when people say this this book Shui Guan, we can call it Water Margin is the closest translation, even though those two words in English don't really say much to the reader, the English reader. Okay. Most people assume because it's been、uh, the point has been made over and over again through the years. That the earliest version of this novel was written in the 14th century,、mm-hmm. and then by someone named Luo Guanzhong,、mm-hmm. and then revised and therefore given the the authorial credit to someone named Shunai An slightly later.、Right. But we have really no evidence that such a book existed, or we can say yes, such a book may have existed, but it was not at all similar to. What we're calling the novel, Shui Guan. Right. That's very important to keep in mind when talking about how popular this this book is. What's mo- most popular all through Chinese society through so many years are the stories of the heroes,、mm-hmm. not the very sophisticated、uh, and very carefully structured、uh, form of the novel, which we can quite、uh, accurately. Dated to the middle of the 16th century, much later. Right. Well, in the Western literary tradition, great masterpieces are often spurred by great literary movements like Romanticism, Realism, and Modernism, to name just a few. So, could you please tell us a little about what historical juncture are we looking at regarding the emergence of a novel like Water Margin? 
speak more broadly of the cultural background, the cultural milieu, specifically of the 16th century, mm -hmm. uh, which in my mind, and according to what I've tried to, uh, to present in much of my writing on this subject, uh, only really takes shape in that period, the 16th century. Now the 16th century, many of the listeners know that, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, is the second half of the Ming Dynasty. And in this period, there were really great changes happening in China, both in uh, some very important political uh, changes in political background, but even more in economics, society, cultural history. Mm -hmm. And in this, there are so many uh, factors here that it would take me uh, many hours to really uh, talk about it. Mm -hmm. But the, what I want to emphasize is the let's say proliferation of what of something with, which existed much earlier in China, but because much more widespread. And that's the existence of a class of highly educated, what we can call literary elite. You know, smaller numbers ever since uh, ancient times and Tang Dynasty, especially Song Dynasty. But in the 16th century, this becomes much more widespread due to certain social and cultural economic factors, having especially to do with the examination system, which existed earlier, but only became the primary form of, of personal advancement in this period, mm -hmm. actually dated very specifically to the year 1487, so end of 15th century and going into the 16th. Mm -hmm. And that gives rise to a new class of readers, readers who are highly educated in the classics, in the history of Chinese poetry and prose, especially knowledge of Chinese history, mm -hmm. so that all the patterns of action that take shape in the novel are read by these people, not as just uh, great fun and, and, and exciting heroic adventures, mm -hmm. which is the way most people take it because that's what it does mean in the popular tradition. But these people read it as, among the other great novels of the time, mm -hmm. as serious literary achievement with very special aesthetic uh, requirements and patterns, and also with a level of serious ideas floating around beneath the surface of what seemed to be just a lot of, you know, enjoyable hero stories. Right. So, I mean, I mean, stop there for a moment, then we can go on in whatever direction you like. Right. Well, just like you mentioned, Water Margin is generally acknowledged by many critics as the Chinese literati novel. So could you please shed some light on its literary consumers and producers? The earliest editions of this novel, when it became a novel, take on special aspects of form, which I can talk about in detail if you like, but might get a little boring. But the earliest editions were expensive books. Mm -hmm. they, they were printed by some of the most uh, prestigious and highest class of printing establishments. Now, once again, every time we talk about this, what we call a literati novel, we're talking about a phenomenon which is parallel to the ongoing development of the popular tradition, because there were also popular printings of the book, which were uh, much more crude printing in, uh, by smaller and less, less sophisticated printing establishments and circulated among a more wider audience. Mm -hmm. Let me just give a footnote here. In the audience for books in the 16th century, uh, that means people who could read and appreciate all of the different levels, sophisticated levels of meaning and use of language which uh, requires a very high degree of education. 
Now, how widespread was that in the 16th century in China? Well, some people might mistakenly assume not so widespread, but in fact, it can be clearly established by historians that not just functional literacy to make notes to yourself in business, but serious literacy with, with an ability to read classical works and complex literary texts, uh, that kind of literacy may have amounted to as much as 10% of the population. 10% is not a high number, you may say, but compared to Europe at the time, maybe there were two or 3% literacy in Europe outside the church. So it's, it's really quite extraordinary. And it has a lot to do with the uh, great expansion of the examination system, which gave an incentive to uh, serious education among wider swaths of the population than previously. What are the most prominent narratorial and rhetoric features of Water Margin? And how does the novel represent a new phase according to its own unique narrative tradition, as you mentioned in your 1986 monograph titled The Four Masterworks of the Ming Novel? Uh, well, here I have to go into the details, which I hope won't be uh, tedious to the listeners. There's a, a long list, a whole set of very specific requirements, structural, formal aspects, which these novels demonstrate. Mm -hmm. uh, there's room for variation, and that often depends on the nature of the subject between these four novels. Uh, I can name them all, but let's just stick to Water Margin as our example. Right. For example, all four of these novels, with some variation, but I won't, that'll be confusing to explain that, tend to be exactly 100 chapters in length. Now, most novels that we read in the West or um, in any place may not even be divided into chapters, but if they are, it can be any random number, just when the author brings the conclusion uh, what, what he's trying to create. Mm -hmm. But these novels have a very specific set of structural parameters, let me say, 100 chapters. And 100 is not just a meaningless number because it's a number which so easily divides up into significant units. So these books were very often published in um, we can call volumes or sub-volumes. Uh, there's a special name for that in Chinese. Of either 20 of these units of five chapters each, or sometimes 10 and 10. But always this kind of rhythm of 10 chapter units, mm -hmm. which starts to give a kind of structural integrity to what's going on. When you read what a margin. If you don't read it like a, like a professor or a scholar looking for these kind of things, right. you, you probably don't pay attention to this kind of thing. But when you do pay attention, it's so intricate and so carefully orchestrated. Mm -hmm. uh, the first 10 chapters do a certain thing. The next 10, next 10 each 10 chapter unit does certain things. And, and there's symmetries between the, the first 10 and the last 10. And especially the first 20 and the last 20 have a very special function. Uh, you don't want me to go too deep into how that works, but but things like this. And also, if you have 100 chapters, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be true, but in fact, it is the case mm -hmm. that there's a very clear division at the midpoint, at chapter 50. Sometimes that's 50 or 60, but in the middle of the book, there's a big change in direction, in the nature of the events and the destinies of the characters being presented. And many, many more things. That's about structure. I can go on and on and on. You said also mentioned the word rhetoric. Right. 
Rhetoric means many different things. It's, it's a very loose kind of term we use, you know, political rhetoric and all these kind of usages. Right. Here I'm talking about the way in which the author presents the text in the voice of a narrator. Now, the voice of the narrator may, in fact, just be the voice of the author speaking directly to the reader. Right. But in these books, there's a much more complicated form of that. Mm-hmm. And but this this book I'm gonna I'm gonna describe right now can be very deceiving mm-hmm. because the form it takes is often an imitation of a popular storyteller. Right. Because as I said, there's a is a huge difference between the sophisticated novel written in beginning in the 16th century mm-hmm. and the popular tradition. But the popular tradition was very strong all over China and through so many years. Uh, and part of the popular tradition was in a particular stage in, in like local opera and things like that. But it was also a very strong tradition of oral presentation, oral performance by professional storytellers. Right. And they had their own way of telling the story and sort of set phrases they used. For example, just to give a very easy example, but there's much more interesting things that I can't have time to go into. Uh, at the end of every chapter, they say, it usually ends, every chapter ends in a kind of note of suspense or entry of a new character on stage. And then the, the narrator, which is necessarily the same as the author, mm-hmm. says, if you want to know what happened next, read the next chapter. Right. Uh, that's one example. Right. Another even more interesting thing mm-hmm. It happens in in Water Margin, even more in some of the other great novels. The voice of the narrator sort of steps out of the story and addresses the reader directly and says, Dear reader, uh, you probably don't understand why this character did this. Let me explain. And if you're not really studying the historical development of this, it really seems like, oh, that's just putting into writing the words of the oral storytellers. But it's not. It's a very deliberate and uh, sometimes tongue-in-cheek imitation of that kind of voice of the popular narrative. Often, there's a lot of, in the voice of the narrator intervening that way, often it has a kind of ironic or sarcastic note to a story being told. And this is so important because... So I, I think you're probably going to ask more about uh, uh, this line of questioning in a little while. Right. Uh, because in my reading of these novels, all four of them, I find that what's happening is taking popular what were popular narratives in the popular tradition, hero stories, or in, in, this, in the journey to the West, a quest journey uh, in a Buddhist context, uh, etc., or the Three Kingdoms, uh, a very dramatic period in Chinese history, mm-hmm. taking those, those that material and giving it a kind of critical revision in the, in the novel form. In other words, presenting the characters with a sometimes very complex and uh, ambiguous presentation of of their actions and the uh, of the moral implications of their actions. Now, to really make this point, we have to look at each one, each example, and look, look at the particular ways in which this is done. But I'll just state that as a point, and we can t- talk more about that if you like. 
Right. Well, Western readers often find a given character rather loosely depicted and really scattered across different chapters in a very seemingly inconsistent way. So this kind of storytelling can really make it hard to follow for most Western readers. So perhaps it is useful for us to mention the Chinese narrative genre called zhanghui, meaning chapter-based or with storytelling units. There aren't really storytelling units. It's an artificially adopted way of organizing the text. Right. It's a deliberate literary device. How do such rhetorics reflect important aspects of the Chinese culture? And how did this genre set the aesthetic standard for storytelling in China for the centuries to come? The way in which the voice of the narrator and this sort of critical um, revision or uh, I have to use the word undercutting of the popular images of these characters. In Wadamajan, there are some wonderful examples of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if one of the most beloved characters, the great, one of the great heroes in popular imagination is Wusong, mm-hmm. who's just a very strong fighter and he's mean and he's tough. And uh, we see him in a number of very important scenes. In the popular context, in, in the stage and in storytelling, uh, that's more or less what he remains. But in the novel, it, he begins that way with some, with some very famous examples. But gradually, as we follow his his um, exploits through the through the text, that breaks down. The sense of a, of an invincible heroic fighter breaks down, and he he's we see him much more often failing to achieve his objectives, even becoming a. Uh, kind of a physically broken down person by the end of the book. And that really doesn't square with the idea of Wu Sung as this great hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sung Zhang even more. Sung Zhang in a, you know, unsophisticated, well, I don't want to use that word, but in the in more widespread reading of the book, according to popular imagination, not the sophisticated novel, Sung Zhang is just a hero. He's the leader of this band of heroes. And he brings them together, and they go through a lot of adventures. In the end, well, this is a very controversial point, what happens in the end. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that in a little while, because there, there, there a few, especially two, very different endings that show the conception of the purposes and the accomplishments of Band of Heroes. But Sung Jung starts, and actually, if you read the book very carefully, he doesn't even start as a great hero, mm-hmm. but at least... We see him gradually becoming the leader of this band, and the idea of him being uh, getting credit for creating and leading and leading into battle and and accomplishing great victories. If you're just reading it with a pre a preconceived idea of this of this hero, then you can you can just leave it at that and and just enjoy that for because it makes a good story. But in the novel, so again, let's make a distinction. In the 16th century novel, it goes so far beyond that. And we see time after time, Sung Jiang doing very morally questionable, even very nasty, and that's putting it mildly, uh, things to to other people, to his family. Uh, So then when, and always preaching and claiming the moral high ground, he's fighting for the dynasty and he's fighting for justice, for truth and justice. When in fact, we see time after time, the writer of the novel is questioning that. The literati 
I'm, it's a, a plural word, but I'll use it in, 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 in the singular anyway. The literary writer of the novel uh, is raising doubts about this popular image. If you have enjoyed this episode so far and want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. 